it is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one. The investigators tell us it seems the suspect was going to pass them, then turned and fired. And Christine, Laura, what you're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations. Arise to support the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump. And I'm about to talk to him about allegations that he was involved with prostitutes in Moscow and that the Russians taped it and have leverage over him. Welcome back to armedforces.press. We have a special guest today, a good friend of CDM and armedforces.press. He's a Naval Academy grad, test pilot, uh, and was the, what's the correct title, Tom? You were the coordinator for the F-35 development? Is I was, my title was executive vice president, general manager for F-35. So Tom Burbage uh, joins us and uh, we're happy to have him. So Look, you, you put this book out, which is the focus of this interview, but I want to, you know, I, I studied aeronautical engineering at the academy and I, I, I kind of have a, just a very basic understanding of what you went through to develop this airplane. But uh, tell us how you got involved in it and, uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, I have been, I was with Lockheed for 33 years before I retired and I was in a number of different positions in different geographical locations. But um, the biggest program that I ran prior to this one was the F-22 Raptor mm. program. And I was just coming off of that. I had left it about a year earlier and had fleeted up to be the, the interim president of the company in Marietta while they were considering mm. consolidating the airplane companies. And, and um, I had a lot of current contacts in the Pentagon. I had worked through the whole acquisition community on F-22, mm -hmm. although it wasn't international. It was U.S. only. And uh, w the company found themselves in the middle of a competition that, that could lead to the restructuring of the aerospace industry in a fairly major way depending on who was selected the winner. Mm -hmm. Sometimes programs never go the way they're predicted to go. F-22 certainly didn't do that in terms of numbers in the beginning, mm -hmm. but um, it had the potential to be the replacement for the F-16, F-18, uh, quite a few airplanes, uh, 14 in total if you count the numbers that are being replaced in the international community. And so it, it had the potential to be a very large, very long running program. And it had come down to Lockheed, uh, Martin versus Boeing in a X airplane fly off. Those airplanes had no uh, stealth. I'm sorry about that. No worries. No stealth. They had no um, weapons bays. They were they were really just demonstrating that the aerodynamic performance of the airplane, as we as we predicted, it could be achieved. Mm -hmm. These contractor had the opportunity to build two airplanes to demonstrate three different variants of the airplane. So we went through that X phase. Uh, Lockheed Martin was was awarded the winning contract almost 22 years ago now. And uh, the, um, you know, the process of putting together the industry partnership, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, BA Systems at the prime level, mm -hmm. those, those companies are used to being primes, not subcontractors or right. partners so much. So we had that and we had a large tier, second tier of major suppliers doing individual centers like radars and EW systems, uh -huh. things like that. And then the U.S. government decided that since our closest allies fly our airplanes today and they fly and fight with us, they would make this program, uh, let this program include those countries, um, and they would help carry a special status. They would have representation in the program office, key representation. Mm -hmm. uh, they would they would provide um, requirements for the airplane. They would basically, you know, it would be a team effort all the way. 
yeah. really hadn't, hadn't been tried before. All three services in the U.S. trying to decide what the what the family of airplanes ought to look like, and then and then eight international partners that were participating in that very process. So, so it was a quite a it was referred to sometimes as a Rubik's cube of partnering. There was so many different combinations and permutations of how to put all that together, and uh, extremely good partnership with the government because um, there's obviously classified issues that go along with that. Um, Industrial participation was was assured as part of the agreement, so every country uh, could compete and try and win work on the program, which became a challenge because many of them uh, had to go to another level of manufacturing technology to build right, a right. precise tolerance control required with a stealth airplane. So, so this story is a, is that journey, and, and it's based on a little over a hundred interviews with all the key people. We interviewed all the major government program managers, all the, a lot of the Lockheed key people that were in technology development positions, uh, four to eight people from each of the partner countries, um, test pilots. Uh, we, we had one or two, um, as, as every new program does, close calls. Um, luckily, we never lost an airplane or a pilot mm -hmm. in development, which is kind of unusual. Rare, yeah. But, yeah. Um, so it's that story. Um, and I'd like to say that it, it's not my book. It's the book that's told through the eyes of all those people. So I have a question for you. So, um, you know, I'm an Air Force guy, and uh, the A-10 has been a big issue with the F-35. Can the F-35 replace what the A-10 does? Is that a good decision in your mind? It's really, it's really just uh, <clears throat> gets down to the mission. What are you, what yeah. are we really trying to do? You know, the A-10 yeah. was A-10 was sort of our, my vintage was probably a little before your vintage. Yeah, it was being tested when I was in test pilot school, which is almost 50 years ago. Um, and it's a tank killer, and, and it's it's meant to be you know down in the dirt. Um, oh, and slow, yeah. Right uh, now, now the with the stealth capabilities and the and the precision of the weapon systems that are on uh, these airplanes, you can get the same end result without putting the airplane down in that environment. Stealth mm. is, isn't really it, it, what it allows you to do is come out of that environment and operate with impunity. You know, that's mm. sort of the way it, the way it works. So I think. The, the end mission result, can it kill a tank? It certainly can kill a tank from, from altitude. Right. Uh, and, and if the tank is fighting in heavily defended air defense system, like you see in Ukraine today, where both sides have heavy, uh, very capable of air defense systems, and the air, the air war is not really happening. It's, it's yeah, it's kind of been shut down, right? I mean, right. because of the air sides. defense. Yeah, yeah. Both sides, yeah. So it really depends on how effective the stealth is, and that's obviously classified, but um, interesting. Right. Okay. Right. Right. So tell us about the interpersonal uh, relationships you had during this whole process. I mean, it must have been a, a really <laughs> psychologically <laughs> challenging <laughs> experience. Well, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things that came together right in the middle of this development program, not the least of which was the rise of social media. Yeah. Where, Every critic in the world could be connected and every opinion counted, whether it was based on pure fact or not. So we we, we were constantly, you know, in a bar fight trying to uh, make sure that that the accurate description of the airplane was out there because it was you could influence decisions, particularly in political decisions on budgets and things like that. Mm -hmm. there, we, there were incumbent uh, airplanes that wanted to continue their production and would love to have some of the money that was going to F-35 to buy more mm -hmm. of them um, and, and trying to keep the program on track um, became a pretty um, kind of a different, um, much more involved, not unlike what you're doing today, trying to keep yeah. the US on track with all the stuff you're doing. But we, we had to work through the Department of Defense. Uh, we had to work through the um, Congress, obviously. Whenever the Congress was in session, I was pretty much living in D.C. Mm -hmm. And if you think about um, eight international countries, 
every one of them has a DOD equivalent and a parliament or congressional equivalent. So they're also fighting budget wars all the time. So, so we had to, we had to make, um, we had to make credible, uh, a credible reputation with all this individual service leaders, the air force and Marines and the Navy. And, and, you know, both the Marines and the Navy are part of the department of the Navy. So the internal budget struggles there were even more intense, I think, from a cultural standpoint. Hmm. Um, we had the other, the other interesting thing was the, the uh, Stovall airplane, the one that can take off short takeoffs and land vertically historically has been done by the Harrier and the Harrier is a hard airplane to fly. And, and there's a certain bravado and, and uh, pilot culture that comes along with, I'm a Harrier pilot. And so you're not going to fly my airplane very easily. And there was a way to, to mechanize the F-35B. So it was just, it's just like any other airplane. You can really literally jump from one to the other and fly all three of them. Well. Wow. Taking that difficulty out of the equation, you think would be a no-brainer, but uh, culturally, it was difficult for the guys that had flown Harriers all their lives. So we were fighting little internal cultural problems like that. And then, if, if you go to the international community, each one of them had an opinion. You know, uh, F-16, the F-16 group of um, EPAF companies, the European producing uh, air forces, um, that had made F-16 pretty much the NATO standard over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're all involved, uh, almost all of them were involved in the very beginning. They were kind of the hardcore of this international partnership. And that was the Netherlands, uh, Norway, Denmark, Turkey. Um, then we had the, the strategically important countries like um, Italy, Italy, um, and the F-18 operators, uh, Australia, were all looking at to replace their frontline airplanes. And so this was, this was the train to get on if you're going to do that and you want to be effective in the next 20 years. So obviously the stealth is a huge part of the aircraft, but it's a software machine too, right? I mean, that's what runs everything is that's the main challenge, correct? Yeah, that probably the biggest leap. I mean, the stealth stealth has followed an evolutionary um, process, you know, where we went from the, from the F-117, which was, was, that was when I first started working with Lockheed and, and it mm -hmm. was very complicated. And then computers were much more ancient than they are now. And, mm -hmm. and uh, they had to calculate very carefully, careful faceted surfaces if you've seen the Nighthawk obviously and then mm -hmm. that was to basically deflect deflect and then absorb where you needed to absorb radar energy and and the airplane proved itself in you know Gulf War one in, in the early days then the air defense systems became much more sophisticated and stealth is a, in the early days was very difficult to maintain mm -hmm. there were sophisticated coatings that had to go on the airplanes were generally made out of metal mm -hmm. um, then the the um, B2 came along and was able to, to introduce curved surfaces instead of faceted surfaces. And then the F-22 came along and basically brought back fighter performance in a big way into a stealthy platform. There was always a compromise between aerodynamic performance and stealth mm -hmm. because of the shaping of the airplane. And then, and then uh, F, and of course, F-22 has thrust factoring and internal character weapons and all the things that you would need on a stealthy airplane. But it was also metal. Uh, it was metal wings and metal skins which meant it still needed to have some sophisticated coatings on it to, hmm. to, to maintain its characteristic. Then along came, 10 years later comes the F-35, and, and a couple of things uh, had changed. One was the manufacturing of complex curved composites had really advanced during that period of time. So now the whole skin of the airplane could be composite, not metal. Mm -hmm. That changed the whole way you have to treat it and maintain it. We actually were driven to that because two of the three airplanes had to go to sea. You know, it's mm -hmm. a saltwater environment. There's no humidity controlled hangars on a ship. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you had to be robust and, and, and tough, tough. So that was one of the biggest breakthroughs on the program was, was that 
generational leap on stealth. The second one was uh, they really wanted to have all of the sensors on the airplane fully integrated. So when you're in an F-35, you're basically looking at a, at a TV like you have in your hotel room and you're watching the movie. Mm-hmm. You're not watching the sensors. And, and it's all integrated behind the behind that uh, display, you know, through software. The airplane has about 9 million lines of code of software in, the, in it in the flying airplane. <clears throat> the other thing they wanted to do was to bring it all up and integrate it into the helmet. So, so basically, uh, day or night, there's a series of cameras around the airplane that can capture uh, imagery and, and you can display it on your helmet. And it, it's just changed the whole nature of what the pilot can do now. The pilot can manage the mission. The, the pilot's a strategist. The pilot can share his information with others. He's not spending a lot of his time you know, integrating in his own head. What's the radar telling me? What's the EW system telling me? Like that. That's so done that, for him, I guess? Pardon? That's done for him. I mean, he, pre- he software, presented that information. The, the software does that for yeah. you. You don't know. You don't know what's what's developing these tracks that you're following. Uh, you don't know whether it's the radar is the primary, you know, instrument or not. And generally, the software is integrating all those all those details and, and presenting just a picture of the world around you. So that's so that's, that's really, a human factors problem yeah. to solve as, as well, right? Yeah, and that's really changed. It's really changed the way the pilots can um, operate and integrate. The other, the other major operational uh, advantage of this, and it hasn't proven out completely yet, is any, you can come now from a big carrier, you can come from an L-class carrier, you can come from a field, you can come from a partner country, and when you join up in the fight, you're all in the same airplane. So you're, in, in essence, mm-hmm. a composite squadron. Mm-hmm. In the past, that hasn't been the case. They are, a lot of them fly U.S. airplanes, but they're not all the same. Right, right. So Turkey didn't get the F-35, correct? Is that... Turkey, Tur- Turkey was the original part one one of the original partners, and they actually built F-16s in Turkey uh, mm-hmm. during the F-16 days. They're a very capable um, industry, probably the most competitive industry of, of all the countries that were participating. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a large uh, part of the industrial participation. They were making the center fuselage as a second source for Northrop, which is a really big piece of equipment. Yeah. But then they had to make a decision on um, on on modernizing their own air defense systems. And there were some political diplomatic issues with the U.S. Uh, system that they were originally looking at. Um, so the President Erdogan went decided to buy the Russian S-400 air defense right. system. The U.S. said, you're not going to have that system in our airplane in the same nation because of the potential to leak uh, you know, information. So, so they retracted um, Turkey's partnership. They're now back to buying more F-16s, uh, more modern F-16s. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was—it's not as easy as just retracting something because now you have to reposition all that work in the supply chain. Yeah, that's then, a backwards effect, a flow-on, I guess, a blowback, I guess you should say. Right, and then right, right at the time that was happening, of course, COVID hit, and that that had a big impact on supply chain transfers too. So, I think the final solution was they let Turkey complete the contracts that they had but just didn't renew any contracts when those ran out. So the book is called, I'm going to bring this up here. Um, F 35, the inside story of the lightning Two. Uh, you've got two other authors. Tell us how you put the book together. The other two authors, uh, Betsy Clark and Adrian Pittman. Uh, Betsy is a software, uh, owns a software company is an, a software expert. And Adrian is a, a longtime engineer in the Royal Australian air force. Um, mm. And they both were tagged to come do uh, assessments of the program at about the 2010 point where software is now becoming the big issue. We've sort of gone through most of the technical challenges we had. 
And they came in and did a, um, I think eight or 10 different reviews of the program for both our Department of Defense and for Australia. And they were uh, sort of amazed by the fact that they thought the program was on a fairly steady course and the amount of negative criticism that was coming out didn't match up with where the program really was in their mm -hmm. opinion. They stated that in their assessment. And, and so they decided that they would um, put together a book about that and try and correct the record. And, and it would be more of an, <coughs> excuse me, of an academic uh, book that would lessons learned, how do you manage big complex programs, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And they had a list of interviews and they had they'd been interviewing people for about a year. They got permission from Lockheed Martin from the Joint Program Office in Washington and from the Australian MOD to, to interview people. And that, I was on their list. And so they mm -hmm. came to Atlanta and interviewed me for about two days. And, and I said, you know, um, with all due respect, there's, there's a, another way of doing this book that you might find more interesting. And that would be to tell the human journey, not just the technical journey, because the technical program management side, is, there's a number of books out about that already. Mm -hmm. uh, nobody's actually lived through the growing pains and, and the building of the partnerships and all that stuff. Um, and, and the people that did live through it could probably tell a pretty interesting story. So we decided to modify the interview list and we expanded that to be the people that I mentioned. And then we started uh, and we had a little over 100 interviews. It took us a couple of years to, to do that because every, everybody had moved on and some of them were in very senior positions uh, mm -hmm. in government trying to get their, um, get their inputs. But we, we did got some great interviews and it helped us tell the story. I learned a few things. Even though I had been in the middle of it most of the time, there's still things that you don't really see. Yeah, it's a huge program, for sure. Yeah. So what's 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 the life of the F-35? Is this like a B-52 that's going to go 100 years, or what do you think? The current the current conjecture, the airplane, first of all, was designed for 8,000 hours of structural life. Mm -hmm. Today's airplanes are designed at 6,000. So it was another you know 20% increase on service life from a structural standpoint. Um, everything I've read says they expect to see F-35s flying until about 2070. Hmm. So that's another that's uh, a long time. 50 years, yeah. Yeah. What, how's the state of our uh, uh, aviation industry in the U.S. at this point, in your mind? Uh, well, it's interesting. I was I was at um, I'm at the Taylor reunion right now, and there was mm -hmm. a, a symposium last night where the senior three-star admirals that are in charge of naval aviation and uh, we're appealing to industry. All of industry is here showing their wares and displays to help them keep things on schedule. The biggest problem they have now is schedule delays. Mm -hmm. I feel like we are in a national crisis right now and we may have to respond on short notice to very much so. Yeah. All the things you and I have talked about. Yeah. Uh, and they were appealing for, you know, priority on schedule, schedule, schedule. I got to have it. I, some of the things, some of the capabilities they want to have online by 2025 are now slipping to the right a little bit. Mm. Happens for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, there's it's hard to get continuity and leadership because they're usually two to three year tours, and then a, another leadership batch will come in. I think the a good example of that is in in the Netherlands. I think they had something like eight different governments in the first 12 years of the, of our program, and they were a principal partner. So we had to go re-educate everybody that came in. So so there's there's that churn and there's the supply chain issues that have come out of, of COVID and um, so supply chain is driven both by raw materials, but it's also driven by the ability to get contracts done. Yeah. And that, and that gets slowed down when people are telecommuting. So, so there's lots of things that affect that. But right now, I think the state from a technology, I think the state of the industry is in good shape. 
Hmm. I think there's a lot of people working on the R&D side and, and the uh, technology evolution side. Um, I think the big challenge they have is to try and shorten time spans, which means shorten contracting cycles, shorten testing cycles, get stuff out there quicker. That's what they're asking for. So um, is there a problem in uh, filter, filtering out of the military? Do you, do you see the DEI impacting the R&D and production and sourcing process? Like that's a lack a, of a merit-based system? I think that's a big challenge, and, and that's uh -huh. where I've been spending a good bit of my other life. Yeah, most, most of my time right now is either working on getting the book out there, and then the other side is trying to work with the group. Tell us I've about been. the Calvert Group real quick. Calvert Group is a group of my my sort of as a group of my classmates that got together once in a while to go play golf, mm -hmm. and it was and rather than remember everybody's email, we put a lump email under something called the Calvert Group, and Jim Calvert, uh, Admiral Jim Calvert was our superintendent when we were at the Naval Academy. He was ah. the first submariner to surface under the North Pole. He, has, he had a huge, huge record and great great leader, and uh, we got involved uh, maybe three years ago with some. Uh, inside information on on some activity that was going on at the Naval Academy with this shift of focus from leadership development to critical race theory and DEI mm -hmm. starting to permeate. It had it had almost snuck in in a way, you know, the, the, the over nothing takes as long as an overnight sensation. It, it had snuck into our school systems well before, but parents yeah. were pretty much ignorant of it because two parents are working and. If there's a good thing about the pandemic, it's they were able to look over the kid's shoulder and see what they're being taught. And that sort of started started the pushback. Yeah. We had no idea it was also coming up into the service academies, Air Force Academy, Naval yeah. Academy, Terrific. West Point, yeah. all three, all three were were received, you know, in that mix. And then you have four years to to develop a young person to be the next set of leaders, and many of them will go to combat. And how do you do that when their focus during that four years is distracted on many other things outside of military leadership purposefully in my opinion yeah. I, I agree i agree so do you see that in industry is it impacting the quality of what we're producing it's, it is interesting that industry um regulators or if that's probably the wrong word but industry mm -hmm. people that put out guidance went as overboard as anybody else did in the beginning everybody had dei and there, there's a corporate uh three-letter term that's equivalent to that it's a uh, it's ESG. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that's what, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but, and I'm on a couple of boards and I would get into arguments with some of the other board members about this is, you should, just on the DEI piece, you know, everybody believes that the D and the I are words that people should respect and understand and, and deal with, but not at the expense of meritocracy. Yeah. The E one, the E one is antithetical to meritocracy. Yeah, everybody it's equal outcome instead of equal opportunity. Yeah. Instead of opportunity, you have outcomes that are the same. So. So I think I'm seeing the pendulum start shifting back now, and you've seen some of, it, some of it with the Bud Light Target stuff yeah. that's going on, where, where uh, industries we, are we starting. Can't really to boycott the F-35. No, no, <laughs> no. I think in general the the military, the military as, as we've discussed in the past should have been should be the last, um, you know, I don't know, unit last institution to to mm -hmm. go down a path other than. Um, other than you know the the cultural uh, war fighting leadership type place, yeah. and so as the military gets infected, the the industry, I think the industry a lot there's a lot of retired military, a lot of military influence on the industry itself, and I think I think that combination is resisting, starting to resist more um, that tendency that we that the country has gone through to move towards that kind of a different ideological structure.
Yeah. Last question. Uh, should we, is it, was it the right decision to not build any more F-22s in your, in your view? Uh, F-22's requirement was to be the next air dominance fighter. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it started in, in the 1990s and it had mm-hmm. a, a firm set of requirements that drove that decision. And there was a, a different set of requirements that drove the decision to go towards a single engine multi-role fighter to replace the infrastructure airplanes. Mm-hmm. Should we have more um, air dominance fighters? I think the F-22 has proven out to be a real, real effective airplane. Mm. And I think truncating its quantities when we did, right when it was at the bottom of its cost curve, was probably not the right decision for the F-22. The question is whether it was the right decision for the nation or not, given the budget pressures that were existing at the time. Mm-hmm. Had they continued, had they continued to, uh, sorry, to uh, I've got my phone turned off and my watch turned off. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no but worries. had they had they continued to buy F-22s, it may have slowed down, you know, the budget required to do the F-35. So there's all kinds of trades in that discussion. Sure. Uh, but, uh, and they are, they are basically different missions. They operate in different environments. So, so the book is the F-35, the inside story of a lightning two. And uh, is, is it released now or when is it coming out? It's out at uh, the official release date was the middle of July. So last month, and we were in the, in the UK for the, of uh, their big air show over there. That was kind of the launch event. It was terrible weather, so it wasn't great for an air show. But, but uh, And then this is our second major event. But uh, it is on Amazon. It, it is on, uh, on Barnes & Noble. It's being distributed through outlets. We do have an author's website. It's called F35InsideStory.com. Okay. Anybody, anybody that wants to get a better deal on the book, we, we as part of the business model for, for um, publishing, uh, the authors get the first batch of books. And so we're, we're, we're allowed to sell those through our right. own website. We don't right. have all the, all the, um, all the other costs that come along with What's um, that website again? It's called F35insidestory.com. Okay. And, or anything close to that will take you to the website. Excellent, Tom. Thanks for your time. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks very much, Todd. Thanks okay. for all you're doing too. Take care.